0: When a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine becomes available, chances are that my guest today will have had a hand in bringing it into the world. Richard Hatchett is the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI. You have probably not heard of CEPI, but it is at the center of a global cooperative effort to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. CEPI is a young organization. It was created in 2017 by governments, philanthropies, and civil society organizations to support the development of vaccines and medicines for infectious diseases that have the potential to become pandemics. When COVID-19 emerged, CEPI made early investments in vaccine research and development and in building infrastructure around the mass production of a vaccine. At time of recording, 9 sepi CEPI-supported vaccine candidates are in clinical trials. This includes two of the most promising vaccines that are currently in large-scale human trials, the Moderna vaccine and the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. What makes CEPI investments unique is that in return for early and ongoing support from CEPI, the drug makers agree to equitable access to the vaccine when it becomes available. In other words, when a CEPI-supported vaccine comes to market, it will be accessible to people in poorer and wealthier countries alike. Now, the mechanism by which a CEPI-supported vaccine will become available to people in both wealthy and less wealthy countries is through another model of international cooperation. This is called the COVAX Pillar. And how the COVAX Pillar works to achieve global access to a vaccine will be the subject of Part 2 of this series on how the world will get a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, the reason I wanted to do this two-part series is to highlight these two platforms for global health cooperation. They are distinct but interrelated, CEPI and the COVAX Pillar. Both are not very well known, but together they will be responsible for bringing a COVID vaccine to most of humanity and ultimately to ending this pandemic. CEPI and the COVAX Pillar are new models of international cooperation that have been developed to end this pandemic. They stand in contrast to what has become known as vaccine nationalism. This is when governments make side deals with drug manufacturers to provide doses of their vaccines for their populations alone. Both part one and part two of this series makes a convincing argument that by pooling resources, this pandemic will come to a swifter end, benefiting people in wealthier and less wealthy countries alike. So here is part one of the series, my conversation with Richard Hatchett, CEO of CEPI. join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June global health matters is available on Apple podcasts Spotify and YouTube
1: so sepi is a new organization we were established about three and a half years ago actually at the at the world economic Forum um, we were established in the wake of the West African Ebola epidemic, and uh, you know the reviews of what had occurred there, what had, what had gone right and what had gone wrong. And uh, one of the very exciting developments in the response to the Ebola epidemic ultimately was the demonstration that what is now the Merck uh, uh, vaccine uh, was nearly 100 percent successful in preventing Ebola disease. What had gone wrong, was that that vaccine had been under development for more than a decade and at the start of the Ebola epidemic had not even entered human clinical trials. And as a result, uh, was it was unable to deploy the vaccine into the field for more than a year. And while they were able to demonstrate this very high rate of efficacy, were not able to really have a significant impact on the Outcome of the epidemic, and as, as you probably remember, twenty eight thousand people, uh, more than twenty eight thousand people infected, more than eleven thousand dead, three economies devastated, and you know an epidemic that went on for more than a year and a half. And I think there was a a, a awareness among global public health leaders, and I will say at long last um, that emerging infectious diseases also represented a global health problem. Global health. Uh, community had not really focused on addressing the threat of emerging infectious diseases or epidemic diseases um, in its understandable focus on diseases like HIV, TB, malaria. Um, and a, a period of reflection and review led to the idea that a organization should be created with a primary focus on developing vaccines, to address known threats such as Ebola, and to be ready to address uh, emerging threats, and we're obviously in the midst of responding to one of those emerging threats right now.
0: So, what did your work look like before December thirty first, twenty nineteen, when COVID nineteen was sort of identified and, and named?
1: Sure. So, well, um, over the over the three years before. Uh, COVID emerged. Uh, obviously, we were building up the organization. We were dividing our attention between two main areas of programmatic focus. Um, the first area was to develop vaccines against diseases like Ebola, and, and we were working very much in alignment with WHO, which had, li- had created a list of what they called priority pathogens. Uh, And from that list of priority pathogens, we had selected a a shorter list of vaccine of diseases for which vaccines could be particularly important. And so we were helping support the continued development of Ebola vaccines, but also working on vaccines against loss of fever, against a disease called Nipah, against chikungunya, against Rift Valley fever and against MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, which is a also, a, a coronavirus, and um, when COVID emerged, um, what well, the second. I'm sorry, back up. The, the the second area of focus was in developing um, technology uh, platforms, uh, uh, approaches to developing vaccines um, that could be used in a rapid response, so that if you had a brand new pathogen emerge, um, that that these approaches to vaccine development could be Deployed to promote very rapid development of vaccines against newly emerging threats. Like you have like a, a system, a process, like a rubric, and you would just like apply that to a newly emerging threat. It, 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 exactly. I mean, you you have an underlying approach for developing vaccines. I mean, a, a lot of everyone will have heard about the Moderna mRNA vaccine, and and so that that is an example of a technology platform that is an approach to developing vaccines using mRNA that. Whatever the threat is, if if you can decide what part of the virus you need to develop an immune response to, you code that into mRNA, and then you can rapidly produce the vaccine, and hopefully rapidly scale that up to large numbers of doses if you need to. And so we were looking at a variety of approaches to developing vaccines that um, both had the ability to respond quickly to a new threat, and that also had the potential to scale their production rapidly.
0: Um, so, so COVID comes uh, and all of a sudden, you know, your organization becomes very suddenly relevant. Uh, you know, you're seemingly built for this moment, as you said. Uh, when did Steppy start transitioning its work to COVID more or less, you know, full
1: time? Uh, well, I, I, I think we, like the rest of the world, paid attention when the first reports coming out of China on December 31st um, were issued. And we had been working actually on on developing emergency response protocols, uh, you know, for just such an incident. And we immediately elevated our uh, alert posture, you know, within the first week. Uh, and and we're watching things unfold. And and I believe the sequences for the virus were released. I believe around January 11th or 12th, something something like that. Um, and it became evident that we were dealing with a new coronavirus. And I mentioned MERS uh, as one of the viruses that we were working on. We had we had allocated around $130 million to the development of MERS vaccines. And MERS is a disease that's only affected around, I think, 2,500 people since it's been discovered. And and people often ask me, why are you putting so much money against MERS? And And part of my answer, a big part of my answer was we need a vaccine against coronaviruses because they're... A dangerous threat. So when, when, we, when we learned that we were dealing with a new coronavirus, our level of concern went up significantly. And we actually made a decision at that point without knowing which way the epidemic was going to go. Because if, if you'll remember back to January, initially there was a, a long period when the number of cases seemed quite stable and it was being attributed to a, a, an outbreak in December. And it wasn't clear that it was a rapidly growing epidemic, but we decided based on the first 41 cases that we should have some candidate vaccine constructs just in case we needed them. And so we began to gear up to think about how can we develop, and that that just means having candidates doesn't mean even doing preclinical testing, and it certainly doesn't mean doing clinical trials, but just having some constructs that just in case things evolved. And, And what happened between January 15th and January 20th, is that they evolved very rapidly. Suddenly the number of cases went up from about 40 to over 300. And the Japanese, I mean, the Chinese um, government began to implement very draconian restrictions on movement and um, you know, in, in Wuhan. And um, we very quickly interpreted what was unfolding as suggesting that um, we were dealing with a, a, pathogen that was highly infectious, uh, easily transmissible human to human. And given the the duration of the outbreak may have already escaped the, the, even the possibility of control. And, and so by January 20th, we made a decision to not just develop vaccine constructs, but to fund taking those constructs into clinical trials. And by January 23rd, We had established our first three contracts to support vaccine development. So we, we moved very rapidly uh, into, you know, a very high level of response. And unfortunately, as events continued to unfold, um, you know, it was, it was uh, obvious that we were dealing with an incipient pandemic.
0: So, you know, as we're speaking today, I know that CEPI is supporting a, a large number of, of vaccines at various stages of development. Um, can you just describe the process of how SEPI goes about supporting the uh, development of a vaccine and what that looks like, uh, in both in terms of how you fund it, how you choose what vaccines to support? Um, what does just kind of walk me through
1: your process? Sure. So um l- let me, let me, let me actually walk you through the process that we took with COVID because I, I think it, I think it is illustrative both of our flexibility and of our ability to respond rapidly. Um Pre-COVID, pre-COVID, you know, we would issue calls for proposals and we would get in proposals and we would go through a, a big review process. And we had, we had been actually working to, to, shorten that the the cycle time on on those kinds of reviews and I the previous call for proposals we had, we had issued contracts within about four months of issuing the call for proposals um, with with covid we certainly did not feel that we had four months to to you know issue a call for proposals and wait to see what came in and and, and to move and so we um, in in making that decision around January 20th to elevate um, you know, our investment to the point of taking vaccines to clinical trials, we looked at platforms, rapid response platforms that we were already supporting, um, such as Inovio's DNA platform, CureVac's, uh mRNA platform, or platforms that we were already very familiar with from prior review. And that was the case with Moderna. And um, we... Moved very quickly. We just made an executive decision to make investments at risk and to bypass competitive process so that we could get things started, and and that's how we were able to, you know, m- make those initial contract awards so quickly. Within a few weeks, however, by the beginning of February, um, you know, it was evident that that a global scientific effort to develop vaccines had been initiated, and that uh, there were at that point they were already. More than 50 programs that we were aware of globally um, to develop vaccines against COVID, and so we did issue a call for proposals, which was on the street for about 10 business days, and we got proposals, and we went through a very rapid review process with external review. I mean, this is not just CEPI staff making decisions, but there there is a you know you know we, we bring in you know objective, non conflicted. Uh, experts who evaluate the the quality of the uh, applications and and then we move forward to a decision and, and and move into you know contract negotiation and we do that very very rapidly to uh, make sure that we have the the best possible candidates from that um, uh, call in February actually the the rest of our portfolio was established and so so right now sePI um, has supported nine vaccine candidates. And I think what's remarkable, if you look at the vaccine candidates that we have supported, um, a number of them were initially um, being developed by, by small biotech companies or even academic partners. And they've now been picked up by some of the largest companies in the world. The Oxford vaccine was one of the early vaccines that we supported. That's now been picked up by AstraZeneca. And I, th- I think everyone is familiar with the AstraZeneca story. Um, yeah. I mean,
0: that's, that's the, uh, I think it was one of the first, the first uh, vaccine to enter into large phase three trials. And that was one of your investments, right? And so, yep. so my question is, what did that investment look like? Um, you, know, you gave Oxford a, a, a sum of money and what did Oxford mm-hmm. you know, promise
1: you in return? Well, the 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 way the way we establish the agreements is, I mean, and to do this quickly, we we put um, agreements in place very quickly, and 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 that it essentially extends an amount of seed funding um, to get programs going, and so that they can get started. And then we follow with with more substantial agreements uh, in in the case that we get positive results and things are going well. With Oxford, um, we actually were very familiar with the Oxford technology because it was one of the Technologies that we were supporting pre-COVID, uh, and and we were actually working with Oxford on three different vaccines on the same technology platform before COVID. Um, so we knew the platform very well. We put in some some money initially, and and then we're we're, um, you know, in the process of negotiating with them about supporting clinical trials when AstraZeneca. Came onto the scene and decided to, you know, dramatically accelerate their vaccine development efforts. Ultimately, we we did establish a, a direct agreement with AstraZeneca. I I can't remember the exact amount of money. I think it was around three hundred and eighty million dollars that we have provided to AstraZeneca, and a lot of that funding is going to support uh, manufacturing capacity. And in the uh, agreement. That we establish, in in this case with Astrazeneca, what we receive for that, I mean, I mean, there there there, you know, a, a specified you know number of of activities related to the vaccine development that we support, and we can support manufacturing, we can support um, uh, clinical trials, we can support preclinical development, but we also, as as a result of our funding, CEPI's mission statement is to develop vaccines against emerging infectious diseases and to ensure um, you know, global equitable access. And, and so also as a condition of our agreements, when we put these large sums of money on the table, we also want to secure access to that vaccine for all relevant populations, particularly including populations in, in lower and lower middle income countries that ordinarily you know, would be, you know, at the back of the line, if even in line at all to get vaccines. And, and fortunately, fortunately, in the case of AstraZeneca and Oxford, we had partners who were highly committed to global equitable access uh, from the very beginning. They didn't need to be persuaded.
0: -hmm. And so basically you enter into these agreements with these vaccine manufacturers or research partners. And part of that agreement is the provision of equitable access to the vaccines for, you know, countries and people in countries who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them or whose governments are not making sort of side deals directly with the drug manufacturers. That,
1: that, 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 that's, that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 and what we have done and what we actually Anticipated as, as we were putting these larger scale agreements in place, you know, with AstraZeneca or with Novavax or with Clover or with other partners that we've invested in, uh, we anticipated um, what has now become the the COVAX um, arrangement, uh, you know, which is our partnership with Gavi and with WHO, both to develop vaccines against COVID and to create a mechanism, the, the COVAX facility that you may have heard about. Um, which will serve as a, as a, as a, you know, essentially a, a mechanism for pooled procurement for all countries, uh, high-income countries, uh, upper-middle-income countries, you know, such as those in Latin America, um, and and lower-income countries. And the idea is that the commitment of doses is to the facility, and then those doses can be distributed among all countries that are participating. Mm-hmm.
0: And I should just tease the fact that I have a future episode coming up, looking directly at the Covax facility and explaining what it is and and how it works. That will pair nicely with uh, my conversation with you today. How many in total vaccines uh, for the coronavirus has Sepi uh, supported so far at all of stages of development?
1: So so our so to date we have uh, supported the investment of uh, in nine vaccines. And uh, of those vaccines, uh, seven are now in clinical trials, including the Moderna and the AstraZeneca uh, vaccines, which are in phase three clinical trials. Um, And we are—we actually have, uh, because the the global effort to develop vaccines is has grown uh, vastly. They're they're now somewhere in the region of 300 vaccines being developed. Uh, We have reopened uh, a call for proposals and are continuing to review applications and hope to make some additional investments uh, in in the near future.
0: That's incredible. So before we talked, I looked at the New York Times COVID vaccine tracker, and it said there are eight vaccines in in uh, phase three uh, and a number of other vaccines in, in
1: clinical trials. Can you just very briefly explain to listeners what do these various phases mean? When vaccines, they go through a, a series of trials in humans as they advance in their development, And the phase one vaccines are purely to demonstrate um, the safety of the vaccine, that you can give the vaccine to people at the dose that you anticipate you'll ultimately be using and that it doesn't, it's not associated with severe side effects or it's not dangerous. Um, Phase two clinical trials are the next phase. They tend to be, they're larger than the phase one studies. Um, And those trials continue to gather information about safety. Uh, but they also begin to gather information about the immune response that a vaccine elicits. And you can begin to get a sense of, is this a promising vaccine? Are you seeing the kinds of immune responses that you would expect in a vaccine that might prevent disease? And then if if, if a vaccine emerges from that phase two study, still looks safe, and the immune response appears to be robust. Uh, You would then take it into a much larger phase three clinical trial, which is when you actually finally demonstrate um, that the vaccine works. And and so those phase three clinical trials, um, some of the phase three clinical trials that are underway right now are anticipating the enrollment of up to 30,000 people. Uh, And the the way they're done, you know, 15,000 get the vaccine, 15,000 get a placebo and you follow them over time. And over time, you you see if the rates of the disease that you're trying to prevent, hopefully it will be lower in in the group that has been vaccinated versus the group receiving placebo. And at as as the vaccine trial proceeds, um, at some point that difference becomes highly significant, and um, you can say we've now proved that this vaccine prevents the disease that we're trying to prevent. and and, and that's the stage we're in with these vaccines that are now in phase three.
0: So you mentioned earlier that CEPI, you know, not only supports the research and development and clinical trials of uh, vaccines, but also the manufacture of, of vaccines. I have to imagine you have a very good global overview of the capacity uh, that exists in the world to manufacture a COVID vaccine once it becomes available, because presumably billions upon billions of doses are going to be have to be manufactured in, in a short order of time. Uh, what does that global capacity look like right now? And, you know, what is CEPI doing to um, you know, accelerate the ability of institutions around the world to actually manufacture these medicines?
1: Well, well, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I mean, what we are undertaking now is, is absolutely unprecedented, which we are trying to develop vaccines essentially, potentially for the entire global population. Um, and that's billions of people. And, and if you, if you look at the global production of vaccines right now, um, the the largest vaccine manufacturer in the world is the Serum Institute of India, and they produce about 1.5 billion doses of vaccine a year. And I believe the second largest is probably Sanofi, and they probably produce a little over a billion doses of vaccine a year. And that's their entire production globally for all the vaccines that they manufacture. And what we're talking about doing is trying to deliver billions of doses of a brand new vaccine um, you know, next year or, or, or in the next several years. Um, so we, we have taken a look. We have done global surveys of vaccine capacity. Um, and there are two major components to vaccine production that are important. One, there's, there's actually just the production of the vaccine substance itself. And then there is a second component, which is uh sometimes you'll hear people talking about the filling and finishing of vaccines or 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 the or or the the drug product, which is basically taking that vaccine that has been produced and putting it into the vials that will be delivered or or the syringes that will be delivered to the you know the uh nurses or doctors who will actually be administering the vaccine. And those two pieces of vaccine production. Tend to be separated. Some companies do end to end, but they tend to be separated, and and so they're two important potential bottlenecks. And we've looked at both, uh, and we've looked at other potential bottlenecks to, you know, the production of vaccines at scale. There, I wasn't deeply aware of this before this pandemic, but there is a global medical class shortage, and and so there there have been concerns about do we even have enough vials to put. Vaccine into if we're lucky enough to have billions of doses of vaccine, and so you also have to, you know, think about these critical supplies, uh, and you have to think about the supply chain from the end to end. Um, I would say that fortunately, actually, given given the the global effort to produce vaccines, I, I think there is certainly a potential to deliver billions of doses of of a covid-19 vaccine or vaccines next year but i also wouldn't want to leave your listeners with the assumption that that is you know absolutely going to happen vaccine production vaccine manufacturing is is a very tricky process and the, you know there are many many steps in vaccine both development but also in vaccine manufacturing and there are many ways that processes can be slowed down or that yields of vaccine can be lower than desired. Um, and I think we will be very fortunate if we actually had billions of doses of vaccine next year. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons when you hear um, you know sober CEOs like Ken Fraser of Merck talking about the challenges, of vaccine production, they they are very concerned not to um, oversell the ability to deliver vaccine at that scale because this is something that no one has ever done before.
0: And presumably, it takes a, a lot of money. I'm curious to learn how SEPI is is funding and how you're able to fund a lot of your work. I mean, to me, this seems just like a really interesting example of like a different kind, a new kind of multilateralism. Um, are governments mostly funding your work at this point?
1: Yes, uh, it has been mostly governments. We, uh, When CEPI was set up, um, you know, we had an initial core group of governments uh, as well as the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust uh, who have provided philanthropic support. Uh, during the COVID response, we have gone out to raise additional funds to support COVID vaccine development. Certainly, we had not budgeted for a, a full-scale, you know, you know, production of vaccine against a global pandemic. Um, and we have had, I believe, 26 to 28 countries, I think, have now made contributions to SEPI, and we are working very closely with Wellcome and very closely with the Gates Foundation in a, in our efforts. Um, Is
0: the U.S. one of those countries?
1: Uh, no, not not yet, uh, although we have uh, been talking with them and we are very hopeful um, that they will make a significant contribution. When we started the vaccine development effort, we estimated that there would be uh, a requirement for about $2 billion of investment for uh, research and development of vaccines. This is before even procurement or delivery. This is just the investment in development that we would need in order to support a portfolio of candidates that could potentially deliver one to 2 billion doses next year. Um, we've been able to raise so far, we've been able to raise about 1.4 billion um, of that total. And our estimate has gone up slightly. So it's now 2.1 billion. So we're still uh, out seeking resources. And I, I think um, governments have been very supportive, but it's also been a challenging time for them because they've been dealing with the economic challenge that COVID presents as well. And so digging deep to find substantial resources to fund vaccine development is challenging. But I think the, the success that we've had to date, in in raising funds, speaks to a a global recognition that this is critically important, and in fact, is really our you know escape route from the pandemic.
0: Finally, when you are making your case to governments to support SEPI, how do you make that case? Because presumably, they can choose to either support CEPI or. Directly invest in one of their own uh, candidates, and you know, just just directly invest or directly make a deal with a drug manufacturer, as opposed to uh, investing in this portfolio that you have.
1: Well, well, I think this is one of the strongest arguments for um, vaccine multilateralism. You, you mentioned multilateralism earlier. This, this is one of the the strongest cases for working collectively and in a coordinated fashion. Uh, you know, across international boundaries. Uh, I mean, I mean, in the first instance, one, the pandemic is an international threat, and and you can't end the pandemic in your country and then have everything go back to normal. Because if the rest of the world uh, rem- continues to be affected, the the disruption uh, that the pandemic is causing will continue, and you won't be able to avoid the collateral damage. the The other, when when, when we're trying to um, you know, uh, raise funds. I think the argument is, you know, by working together uh, through as, through the coalition, uh, by joining the coalition, by making the investments in vaccine development, um, you are investing in a large portfolio of, of very carefully selected and carefully managed vaccine development projects. And and I, 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 it is still true that CEPI's portfolio of vaccines is still... I think the largest single portfolio of vaccines in the world. And and we are actively managing it. And they were carefully selected to hedge risks in a variety of different dimensions. And, And there are very few countries, maybe the United States, maybe China, that can support a portfolio of that size, given the costs that it entails. And so it's by pooling resources and by working together that countries can create a global portfolio. Of vaccines, and and the more shots you have on goal, um, the more likely you are to end up with successful vaccines at the end. And and, and vaccine development is notoriously a a you know an, an undertaking with, that is associated with high rates of attrition, that cost a lot, and that before COVID nineteen took a long time. And 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 so by making these investments across a wide portfolio, you're actually hedging your own risk very substantially. And as I said, for the vast majority of countries, it's only by joining together and, and in, in a collective effort that, that you can do this.
0: Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. This was very helpful.
1: No, thank, thanks. Thanks a lot. It's it, it's it's been a a, a real pleasure, uh, Mark, and, and thanks for having me on the show. If
0: and when my kids get the COVID vaccine, I will be thinking about you. Okay.
1: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Richard. That was very helpful. And interesting. And, you know, it's true, chances are, just the odds of numbers, that uh, if and when a vaccine comes to market, uh, it will have been supported by CEPI. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit global dispatchespodcast.com to peruse our robust archives. I've been doing this podcast for almost seven years now, publishing episodes twice a week, every week on issues of global affairs both topical and thematic, and also you know, shining a spotlight on undercover global issues. And if you are a regular listener, as always, please do send me an email. If there's anything on your mind, you can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you for all your support over this year. I'm really proud of this series. I think it does a really good job of highlighting and explaining the kinds of global cooperation innovations that are happening to swiftly end this pandemic and also you know explicitly making the argument that this is a preferred way of doing things rather than vaccine nationalism all right we'll see you next time bye